Welcome to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast, your source for solutions-focused dialogue about race in America, with your host, Scott Speed. Hello and welcome to the Race Haven Podcast. This is solutions-focused dialogue about race relations in America. My name is Dr. Scott Speed, and I am the facilitator of the dialogue. This is episode 29 of Race Haven, and today I am joined by my friend and co-host and regular contributor, John Costino. John, how are you doing today? Doing great, my friend. Always great to be here with you. Glad to have you back with us for episode 29. And today uh, is a really interesting um, show because John um, initiated the topic for today's show based on the article uh, that he came across in the, in the Race Haven Community Dialogue Group. So we're going to dissect this article and, you know, really dig into the various uh, perspectives that come to us, uh, both John and I. Uh, if you've been a regular listener of this show, you know that John and I come from very different backgrounds, and there's a little bit of an age difference as well, which, um, you know, based on, you know, the background of our ethnicity and how we came up and all these various things, like with most people, you know, there's different differing perspectives. And the cool thing is, you know, John and I are able to dialogue and, you know, think out loud together. And what I've learned through this process is that you, the listener, uh, just based on your lens and how you see the world, you gain a deeper understanding and a broader perspective uh, through listening to John and I, um, you know, talk about these various issues from our, our background, our differing backgrounds. And that's what we hope to uh, accomplish during this show. Uh, but what makes us different is we dialogue, we don't debate. And through dialogue, we grow together um, as opposed to you know, sticking in our polarized positions. So with that being said, I'm excited about uh, today's topic, and we're going to um, jump into what that is. And um, I'm just going to give you the title of this article, and then we'll, we'll go a little bit deeper here in a moment. But the title of the article is White Fragility, Why It's So Hard to Talk to White People About Racism. And that's the title of the article. But before we get into the article, uh, first, I want to tell you, our listeners, about how you can become a patron of this show, how you can support uh, the ongoing growth and betterment of this show. Uh, my first goal is to help the show uh, become free of advertisements. Uh, some of you may hear advertisements before and after the show. And uh, with uh, your continued and support, uh, eventually we'll be in a position where we can uh, pay to have those advertisements removed, which is my goal. Uh, which is the first goal. And so I created a Patreon page and you can go to racehavenpodcast.com and click on uh, become a patron, which is in the top right-hand corner, or you can go to patreon.com and search for Racehaven Podcast and learn about all the details about what it is to become a patron and how you can support at whatever level is comfortable for you. I appreciate all of you for listening and I appreciate all of you who have become patrons to support this show and show your commitment to this show. It is greatly appreciated. 
so moving on, um, you know, before each dialogue show, I like to uh, put on my, my professor hat and talk about dialogue versus debate. And I want to tell you why dialogue is greater than debate, because in debate, there can only be one winner. In dialogue, participants work together towards collective solutions, towards win-wins. And at the beginning of each dialogue episode, I'm going to go through a, a different example of uh, dialogue and why dialogue is greater uh, than debate. So for this episode, I'm going to, um, let's see, let's see which one I want to use for this episode. So for this episode, I want to use the uh, contrasting uh, viewpoints between dialogue and debate as follows. Dialogue reveals assumptions for reevaluation. Debate defends assumptions as truth. So let me say that again. Dialogue reveals assumptions for reevaluation. Debate defends assumptions as truth. So again, we live in a debate-based society. Uh, if you've listened to the show, you've heard me say this over and over. Uh, but for our new listeners, I'm going to continue to do this, um, you know, so that we can continue to, you know, sharpen our, our skill sets in, in, di- in dialogue. Because dialogue, again, it brings us together, okay? And, when, and through this tenet, you know, this is what John and I are going to do. John and I are going to share our assumptions, uh, you know, through today's show uh, based on what we what this article says to us through our lens. And but we're not going to share it from a position of defense. We're going to share it from a position of reevaluation for reevaluation for um, each other to comment on and for each other to improve upon our positions and our assumptions and our perspectives. And we're not looking to change one another. We're just simply looking to broaden one another's perspectives. That's it. That's all we require. That's all we want to, that's all we want to do. So with that being said, uh, we're going to jump into uh, today's dialogue. Here's our framework for authentic dialogue on this podcast. Number one, participants listen with a sense of curiosity and ask questions to undercover the underlying assumptions and beliefs behind someone's statements. Number two, participants are willing to communicate their thoughts openly and honestly while putting aside emotions, defensiveness, and a desire to be right. And number three, participants approach someone who sees a problem differently, not as an adversary, but as a colleague in common pursuit of better solutions. So welcome to the dialogue. John, are you ready? Absolutely, my friend. I love the way you frame everything and it sets us up to be in the best position to hopefully affect a positive change with these dialogues. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate that um, acknowledgement. So with that being said, you know, I want to jump right into just how this conversation unfold because unfolded, because one of the things that I, I like to do with this podcast is just be authentic and honest and, you know, put, put our best for our best thinking forward, and just let the chips fall where they may in the sense that, you know, I'm not here trying to be an expert. And, you know, no one that comes onto this show, um, you know, is here trying to be an expert. We're human, just like you, the listener. Okay, this is not about us being right and you being wrong, or I'm right and John's wrong, or vice versa. This is literally, you know, humans, citizens, you know, uh, colleagues in pursuit of common solutions, just coming together to talk. And, and try to understand one, one another. So with that being said, 
I want to start from the beginning of how this particular conversation uh, began and allow John to share, you know, his motivation behind bringing this article to me. So, John, you, you know, you sent this article to me and you said that you would like to discuss this privately. And what I did was I reached back out to John. And I said, John, I would rather do a show on it because I want our listeners to hear us organically discuss this. So I don't know what John wanted to discuss. We're coming on this show, literally, you know, cold turkey, no pre-conversations about this article to just discuss what was on John's heart. I want to know what was on his heart before we get into breaking down the article and sharing our various perspectives. John, we'll go into deeper detail, but before we go into deeper detail, if you could just share what you were thinking and feeling in the moment uh, when you sent this to me and why Initially, there was a little bit of hesitancy uh, to, to talk about this uh, in public first. You wanted to uh, share something with me in private first. If you don't mind, even if you don't share what that is, but however you, whatever you want to share, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, can you just give, give the listeners and myself some background on what you were thinking and why initially you wanted to discuss this in private uh, before we agreed to go ahead and have this conversation uh, publicly uh, on this platform. Absolutely. Um, and I'll start with the second question first. For me, this is something that I take very, very seriously. And when I say take it seriously, the only reason I join you on these podcasts and the only reason that I will pop in and, and, and do my best to review uh, as much information as I can in the Race Haven community is because I truly do hope at some point we can affect a positive change. I use that phrase a lot because I don't think we're going to make a difference, but I think if we do our best, we can hopefully help to positively affect change in a really, really messed up society. And when I say I take it seriously, I've never come on here with an agenda. I've never come on here with the intent to offend or piss anyone off, yet even after having, you know, healthy conversations with you where we both were really kind of in sync and in agreement on things, it still would come out to the point where the, we'll just call it the response. I won't call it that people were lashing back at me because, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but the response was so far from what my hope and my intent was from our conversation that in having this particular conversation, I said to you, man, even when we, we feel like we think we've got a good message and it's going to land properly, there's always been blowback. So with this one, mm -hmm. I'm positive that there will be plenty of people that for whatever reason don't accept or understand where I'm coming from. And that was my only point was let's have the conversation because if you're not in sync with this, there's no sense in doing a show and just, you know, running the risk of pissing a whole lot of people off that <laughs> quite frankly is not my intention. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And again, I appreciate you, you know, being candid and caring in that way. Um, and what I, what I expressed to John um, about what he just said through our uh, text-based communication that we had prior to today's show, what I expressed to him was I understood his concern and I appreciate that level of sensitivity. Um, but my belief is that this is, I've said from day one, this is hard work. This is not easy. 
and we're going to piss some people off. You know, we're going to rub some people the wrong way. And I just ask that our listeners understand that we're doing the best we can. And that if they understand where our, our heart is and they understand the foundation of what we're, where we're coming from, I believe that we're going to impact enough positive change and, and positive outlook on the message that the overall impact will be positive. So I encourage John to, you know, put aside that concern to go ahead and have this conversation as authentically as possible, because you have to, we have to put our best thinking forward in order to eventually arrive at solutions. And sometimes, you know, I speak for myself personally, you know, and I'll take it outside the context of race relations, but when I'm, you know, dialoguing with my, my life partner, my, my wife, Jennifer, I, I say it a lot of times, I have to say the foolish things in my mind in order to get to the, to the, to the unfoolish things or the correct things. Sometimes I have to say wrong things, wrong-minded things in order to get to the right things, in order for her to help me, you know, think through what's in my head in order for us to get to the solution, in order, in order for us to get to the right way of framing things. So we all have to be willing to show up and trust one another. It, it takes a level of trust to be vulnerable in that way, to, uh, to say, okay, my community, you know, my supporters, my listeners, they understand the foundation of where my heart is. So therefore, I may say some things that they may think is wrongheaded, but, but what I ask of them is to just provide context, provide your perspective, provide a different context or your context, your nuance. And let's hope that, you know, I can say what I have to say and then read your response. And then maybe I'll take something away from it that will impact my worldview and broaden my perspective. Maybe I won't, but either way, it's okay because we're all putting our best thinking out there and there's someone listening somewhere that's going to gain something from it because at the core of everything we're saying and what we're doing is that we're solutions focused. At the core of everything that John has ever said on this podcast, at the core of everything that I've ever said on this podcast is this. We have common ground in that we want to transcend all of the race-based um, you know, divisiveness, and we want to leave the, the world better than what it was when we inherited it for our children and our grandchildren and future generations. John and I agree on that. So if we can agree on that, it doesn't matter what we talk, dialogue about, talk about, because we're all, we're pointing to the same, you know, destination. We're going in the same direction. And then it's just how well we communicate with one another to, to continue to walk in that direction. And the fact that we both continue to show up show after show, month over month, we're still here. I think that says a lot, John. Does that make sense to you, What I'm, the foundation I'm trying to lay here, John? Uh, absolutely, and I greatly appreciate listening to what you're saying because I feel the same exact way. I really do appreciate it. Awesome. So <clears throat> it reminds me, you know, I, I want to I go ahead and, and do this. It's going to take me a second to pull it back up here. But I'm, I'm pulling up my list of um, – dialogue versus debate, you know, tenets, because this reminds me of, um, you know, one of the key uh, tenets. And I want to share this tenet, uh, you know, to, to, before we get into it. So in dialogue, one submits one's best thinking, knowing that others, other people's reflections will help improve it rather than destroy it. In debate, one submits one's best thinking and defends it against challenge to show that it is right. 
So I just want to lay that down as, as, as another foundation for the conversation that we're going to have and the ongoing conversations that we have, uh, not just John and I, but also within the Race Haven Community Dialogue, where a lot of you know, discussion goes on and encourage you, the listener, to, to hear us, not from a position of debating each other, trying to be right, but a position of putting our best thinking forward and helping each other improve on it. And I want our listeners to hear us that way as well. Not that you're debating with what I say or what John says, but that you're listening to us and anything that you want to add to, please do so in the comments underneath this show at either the Race Haven Podcast Facebook group or the Race Haven Community Dialogue Facebook group. Thank you very much for your understanding. Okay, so with that being said, John, here's, here's what I, I was thinking, and you could tell me what you think. Um, you know, in order for our, our listeners to uh, be on the same page with us, what I was thinking is that maybe I can read uh, portions of the article so that they understand the positions from which we're commenting. So maybe I'll read That's like two Okay. Okay. Great. Um, and I know Would our you listeners. Like me to go back. I apologize because I never answered the first question that you had asked, and I want to give that as the table because you mentioned uh, that obviously I had initiated the dialogue, saying you know I wanted to have a conversation about this, but we never. I never answered that question, so we never gave them that information. Oh yes, please do. Okay, so when I reached out to you, it was after. Uh, again, I, I do my best to uh, to find time to get into that race haven community and, and just kind of stay updated. And I won't mention the name, but there's an individual that I've had a lot of, of, we'll just say healthy dialogue with over the past couple of years. And there was a post and I read his comments about the post and, or the message. And then I actually read the message that he posted. I read the, uh, the article and as authentically as I can say this, for me, it seems that I know this person has the best intentions. I know this person is highly intelligent, and I believe is coming from the same place we are because he really, truly wants to see a positive change. The challenge that I have is that for me, I'll just say for me, I won't say for anybody else, I learned through painful process and evolution that I have to be way more conscious of how I speak, the words I use, and be far more committed to the person that I hope receives my message than I am committed to being right about what I have to say. Does that make sense, Scott? Yes, that makes sense. And I say that because I've been a sales trainer for three decades, and for the first 25, 26 years of it, I only thought that I needed to be correct in my statements and in my messages. And as long as I could document and validate that I'm correct, being right was the beginning and the end of it. And I learned, like I said, through a painful process that I had to evolve myself in order to accomplish the goal, which was to have the person listening and receiving my message actually accepted and appreciated. Now, that being said, you know, to me, that's what, effective communication is all about. Meaningful dialogue is all about. What is that goal? Is the goal to be, you know, right and to be heard? Or is the goal for the person listening to actually understand, you know, accept and appreciate what you're saying? So that being said, we've discussed this on different 
different radio podcasts, but it definitely changes my perspective when listening to or reading a message. And and I know we're going to get into the actual article, but I'm just going to say that for me, it's not helpful for me to understand and appreciate someone's message when they apply the labels to me of white fragility, white supremacy, or white privilege. I don't appreciate it. It completely alters my frame of mind when entering into a conversation to either listen or to read something and to come out with what your purpose is or what your your intent is, which is for me to gain some understanding and move closer to that middle ground. It puts me on the defensive for a lot of reasons, and I'll just simply say there are plenty of, of messages and labels that a white person could apply to the African-American community would do the same exact thing. And it goes both ways. We have to be really conscious of not lumping people into groups, not labeling people and not saying things that the person listening and receiving is going to at least feel whether it's accurate, whether it's true, doesn't matter. But if they're going to feel that somehow it's, it's, a, it's a degrading or an insulting type of a, a statement, label, or, uh, or, you know, inclination, it just doesn't set the tone for, for healthy uh, learning and dialogue and understanding. So that's a, a summary of, of why I'd reached out saying this is the kind of thing that, to me, prevents us from moving closer to agreement, understanding, and harmony, even though it was well-intended. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there, and I mean, that's really the backdrop for what we're going to discuss in this article, so I'll wait until we discuss it through the words of the author, Um, but I appreciate you setting that foundation and that backdrop, um, because I believe it's important, and most importantly, you know, your feelings are valid. Um, You know, I want everyone listening to understand that, you know, you have to... um, you know, the teacher in me, and this is something that I've battled with in the race Haven group for the last couple of years um, with talking to to different people uh, when they show a lack of tolerance for um, differing perspectives, you have to, and and this is my opinion. And and as anyone who listens to this show understands, you know, this is, this is my opinion, um, you know, based on, you know, my, my feelings and perspectives. So with that being said, I believe that you have to meet people where they are. And, you know, there's a school of thought out there amongst certain activists, um, where it's, it's more of an approach where you kind of, you, you push, push, push and hammer your point home. And, you know, you kind of, you just push until you kind of get what you want and you kind of hammer your thoughts and beliefs down, you know, people's throats and you expect them to get it because you feel like, you know, what you believe or what you're trying to convey is just, and without necessarily being empathetic for the feelings of the people on the other end or the people you're going after trying to help them to see something that you think they need to see. And that's never the approach. I consider myself an activist, but that's never the approach I've taken. And I know that some people are disagreeable with that and I'm okay with that. Um, But what I will say is, you know, what I hear John saying is that it's, the message, it doesn't matter what the message is unless the message lands. So I've heard John say that before, 
And again, I'm excited to kind of unpack that through this article and share our various perspectives um, on the article um, and, and some of the things that, that John just conveyed, because it's going to be different. It's going to be completely different because, again, we're coming at this from two different lenses. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get into it. So again, the title of this article is White Fragility. Why it's so hard to talk to white people about racism is by Dr. Robin D'Angelo. Dr. Robin, Robin D'Angelo, um, okay, yes, by Dr. Robin D'Angelo. So I'm just going to read, and then I'll stop, and, and I'll let John jump in with some thoughts, and then I'll give some thoughts, and then, you know, uh, we'll, 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 we'll probe and dig deeper and ask each other questions to, to go a little bit deeper. So begin, quote, I am white. I have spent years studying what it means to be white in, in a society that proclaims race meaningless yet is deeply divided by race. This is what I have learned. Any white person living in the United States will develop, will develop opinions about race simply by swimming in the water of our culture. But mainstream sources, schools, textbooks, media, don't provide us with the multiple perspectives we need. Yes, we will develop strong emotionally Latin opinions, but they will not be informed opinions. Our socialization renders us racially illiterate. When you add a lack of humility to that illiteracy, because we don't know what we don't know, you get the breakdown we so often see when trying to engage white people in meaningful conversations about race. Mainstream dictionary definitions reduce racism to individual racial prejudice and the intentional actions that result. The people that commit these intentional acts are deemed bad, and those that don't are good. If we are against racism and unaware of committing racist acts, we can't be racist. Racism and being a good person have become mutually exclusive, but this definition does little to explain how racial hierarchies are consistently reproduced. So I'll stop there. John, you have any initial comments about anything that jumps out at you at that uh, initial, those initial paragraphs? No, and that's my point. I agree with everything mentioned at that point, and that's what basically prompted me to reach out to you because the use of the concept of white fragility, setting the tone. I mean, that's right there in the title. For me, that's the challenge because, again, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that, to me, it sets it up that if I don't agree with something in here, somehow I'm fragile. It's just it's, it's not a healthy way to communicate with somebody. And that's like me saying, well, geez, Scott, I'm going to have a conversation with you about race, and if you don't agree with me, you're just overly sensitive. If I mm -hmm. initially started a dialogue that way, you'd have every right to be like, who the hell do you think you are getting off telling me I'm sensitive because I don't agree? Like, that's just not the way to start a conversation in my mind, and it just seems that there's an awful lot of that, and that's why through the other two labels of white supremacy and white privilege, they're just – they're, to me, they're just as bad as any trigger words or, or uh, messages that would create in the African-American community a defense going up as, all right, what's the agenda here? Before you've even had the chance to hear the message, because like I just said, I have nothing but a full agreement with everything you've just said to this point. So that's, that's interesting, John, because... Um, you know, um, you used the perfect example about, you know, someone saying you're being sensitive. Like when you're, when you're trying to have a serious, oh, I'm sorry, me, I'm speaking for myself. 
when in the in my past in my history throughout my life when i've you know felt maybe upset or felt like something needed to be discussed that i was you know concerned about with a friend or someone i cared about that was close to me someone whose opinions thoughts or whatever mattered for whatever reason and there's been times where someone said oh you're just being sensitive and it felt like they were diminishing you know what Bingo. i was feeling Bingo. and yep diminishing you know what i was feeling and instantly put me on it, it actually made me up it made me upset and it made me even more emotional at that point you know it triggered something you, you said it perfectly john it, it triggered something and so i hear you i can relate to you when you say what you just said the other interesting thing that you just said that i hope our listeners picked up is that you you agree with everything i just read your problem isn't with the content. Your problem is with the approach thus far. Correct. So Correct. just for uh, clarity purposes, um, the term white fragility, you feel like the author choosing a label like fragility while trying to, let's just say you're the audience because you're a European American male. So you're the audience in this sense. And this person is trying to write something to, broaden your perspective or share some thoughts and based on this, her, this person, I believe it's a, a, a her, um, experience experiences. And it's like, while she's trying to do that, she instantly put you on that defensive and instantly like raised your emotions, uh, to the defensive, uh, side of the table because she's calling you fragile and who wants to be called fragile? Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? It's like it, she instantly kind of, put you on, you know, on, on the uneasy side of things, just Absolutely. from that term. In fact, exactly. In fact, I'll make it even more clear. Not only does she put me on a, a, a high alert for this message, she loses her credibility right out of the gate. Instead of me now saying, hey, I look forward to hearing, I don't care about her degree. I don't care about her education. I don't care about her life experiences. She's just lost credibility with me by choosing that title and creating that un very unnecessary, gigantic obstacle for me to now have to navigate to see her perspective. Isn't that silly? I think it is. I think it is. I think language matters. I think, I think language matters. So, you know, I can, I, 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 I well, I don't want to take on your term in terms of calling it silly, but I, I say that I respect you know, why you feel that way, because I agree. What I do agree with is that language matters. And, you know, so yes, I agree with that. So, so moving on, I want to jump into the next uh, stanza here. See if you have any thoughts on this, the next few stanzas. So begin quote, mm -hmm. social scientists understand racism as a multidimensional and highly adaptive system, a system that ensures an unequal distribution of resources between racial groups. Because whites built and dominate all significant institutions, often at the expense of and on the uncompensated labor of other groups, their interests are embedded in the foundation of U.S. society. So I'm going to stop there really quick, John, because I have some thoughts on that, but I'll, I'll let you go first. Do you have anything, any thoughts on that? Well, any I pushback agree or anything you don't understand? No, I, I, again, I agree with the concept. I mean, Today, right now, in 2017, we're 
a lot closer than we were in 1960 or 1980. But, yeah, I absolutely understand that this has been a gigantic social experiment played by, you know, the wealthy families from six, seven, eight generations ago, if not longer, that have basically manipulated race and manipulated uh, social status. And, yes, it is unfair, and, yes, it's been unfair for as long back as anybody can remember. So I get all that, 100% understand that things need to be changed. I'll stop there because I know you've got a lot of very, uh, very deep thought on that. Um, well, before I do, I want to go ahead and read the next paragraph and then I'll speak on it. So it says, begin quote, while individual whites may be against racism, they still benefit from the distribution of resources controlled by their group. Yes, an individual person of color can sit at the tables of power, but the overwhelming majority of decision makers will be white. Yes, white people can have problems and face barriers, but systemic racism won't be one of them. This distinction between individual prejudice and a system of unequal institutionalized racial power is fundamental. One cannot understand how racism functions in the U.S. today if one ignores group power relations. Okay, so, end quote. I want to speak on that a little bit, just very briefly, because, um, you know, John, you, you, you know, I believe, you know, just based on what you're saying thus far, you know, you, you understand and um, I just also I see some growth just in the conversations we've had over the last you know year that you've understood these things more just from being exposed to these things by being a part of Race Haven. So and the interesting thing too, just a point, a side note, I just want people to realize how much I've grown by being a part of Race Haven. Like there's so many things that I've included in my worldview and in, in my perspectives now that came of, as a result of doing this podcast and even before doing this podcast, being a part of the Race Haven Community Dialogue, where someone will share an article like this. And something that said will just add to and, and you know, on, on to my thoughts and beliefs, et cetera. So anyway, with that being said, I'm a work in progress and continue to grow. Um, <clears throat> but what stands out to me about these two paragraphs is something that I'm not sure if any of our listeners, um, you know, are, are hung up on. But some may be still struggling with. But what I see in a lot of the comment sections and not in Race Haven, but in other groups, uh, I'm sorry, other places when conversations about race pop up on social media is that a lot of people have a, a, have trouble understanding this group dynamic that was just expressed here. A lot of Americans still seem to think that America is strictly a meritocracy and think that individualism, um, you know, reigns supreme. And they have a hard time wrapping their mind around the idea of this group dynamic and this fun, this fundamental, um, concept of institutionalized racial power as being fundamental in America. And it's like people don't want to believe that that's the case. Um, And I believe that the reason why is because, you know, obviously, you know, in the eyes of the law, uh, all all of the overt racist uh, tactics that were used prior to, let's call it 1970, once all the laws were enacted, the civil rights laws and everything were enacted. once all those things were enacted, we moved forward in, a, in the a United States where on the, you know, in the eyes of the law, these things were no longer legal. However, what I think a lot of people uh, fail to acknowledge for whatever reason is that it took a lot longer and it's still happening for some people um, for those changes to take place in the hearts and minds of people after centuries of it being lawful 
to enforce this institutionalized racial power for one group who happens to be the majority in population against subgroups who are um, minority uh, ethnic minorities. So even though literally just 30-some years ago in the 1970s <clears throat> or 40-some years ago, um, you know, and by law that it was eliminated, it's still, it's still going to take some time through the work we're doing now for these things to be unraveled in the hearts of people. And even beyond that, it's going to take time for these things to be unraveled in terms of the institutionalized, um, you know, laws and policies that were literally embedded into our society years ago that are still a part of the language of some of the laws that continue to hurt ethnic minorities, whether it be in the business world or in the legal field, et cetera. There's just certain things that is codified in the DNA and the fabric of this country. So I just hope that people, you know, through these dialogues and through listening and continue to talk, will begin to understand these things and not just look at individuals, but look at the bigger picture. So that's all I wanted to share. So let me go ahead and continue on and then allow, and then you can jump back in unless you want to jump back in now, John. Sorry, I was muted. No, go right ahead. Keep going, my friend. Okay. So begin quote, this systemic and institution institutional control allows those of us who are white in North America to live in a social environment that protects and insulates us from race-based stress. We have organized society to reproduce and reinforce our racial interests and perspectives. Further, we are centered in all matters deemed normal, universal, benign, neutral, and good. Thus, we move through a wholly racialized world with an unracialized identity. For example, white people can represent all, all of humanity, while people of color can only represent their racial selves. How does that sit with you, John? Well, I'm going to say again, I, I understand the concept. I can't say that I 100% disagree with it, but I guess part of the challenge for me, and I really would love your perspective on these are the th things that I wanted to have the conversation with you privately, just to even see if my mindset is even in the right direction. But for me, I've, I've been a big proponent over the years in my teachings of the concept of progress over perfection and being able to acknowledge little victories and little successes when people were working hard to make changes. And so taking that concept and bringing it to, you know, our society and our reality, I'm 40, I'm almost 49 years old. So the seventies, I was a little kid. I really don't remember that much. The eighties, I was a teenager. I was pretty ignorant, didn't really care that much. 1990 on is what would be my early adulthood. And what I can say is when I read a lot of the articles that I read and when I read a lot of the messages that are posted, I don't believe enough people are acknowledging the progress that we have made as a society. Not that it makes up for the past, not that it erases the past, but I just don't see enough acknowledgement of the progress that's being made, and from my perspective, it's a dangerous thing. It's dangerous to only look at the negative. It's dangerous to not acknowledge the progress and, and improvements because what it does to the people that are working hard to make the progress 
or paying it. It, it, it gives that very defeated, why am I wasting my time? Is this even worth the effort mentality? Does that make any sense, Scott? Of course. That's your perspective. It makes 100% sense. I don't even mean just in, in race relations. I mean just, it, like I said, in my, in my training career, I've told people you, you get devastated when you know, failure occurs or when something negative happens yet you ignore all the little victories because they're not, you're not at the end. Everybody looks at the end. I haven't reached my goal yet. And if we can acknowledge the journey and the process and, and acknowledge the little successes and the little wins and the little victories, it keeps us internally stimulated and motivated that, okay, it is working. It's just taken a hell of a lot longer than I had hoped. And that's how I view it when I hear, you know, a lot of these people, and it's both European-American and African-American, both male and female, both educated and uneducated. It just seems like there's a gigantic void in acknowledgement of the success and the progress that has been uh, achieved almost out of a fear. And I don't want to put words in anybody else's mouth, but I perceive it from my perspective to be that if anybody were to acknowledge it, they have this fear of, oh, they'll think we're already there and we can't even pretend like we've made progress, otherwise people will stop trying. That's how it's perceived by me, and I think that's just a dangerous, dangerous thing. Okay. So, uh, yes, I, I understand what you're saying. and I, is, I'm glad you said that because I always wonder, um, you know, how people like yourself, and I understand very in, intimately the business that you're in and that your business requires a level of focus, a level of positive, um, adi- a certain um, positive attitude and leading people to be positive and, 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 you know, um, break through barriers and, you know, achieve beyond what they thought they could achieve. And whenever I listen to people like you and other like motivational speakers out there in the world who are, you know, in that field where it's about human achievement, like where your whole business is wrapped around helping people to, you know, get rid of negativity and, you know, achieve the, and, and become their best selves. I, I always think to myself uh, in a lot of instances when I'm listening to these messages, like how do people like that, how do they process some of the challenges that we face in society? Um, and you're, you're explaining and what you just said kind of speaks to it. That's the curiosity of mine that I've had. So I appreciate everything you just said. And, and I understand the conflict I understand the conflict uh, because that's the way it, it reads to me in terms of listening to what you just said. I understand the conflict where it's like, you know what? I operate and I live in this space of positivity, looking for the best in every situation. And that's what I want to speak to. But the rub and the conflict is on the flip side, there's people uh, I'll say like myself, like a social of someone who's an activist. And I, I think of myself as someone who kind of straddles the fence. Uh, but like someone who's an activist um, who strictly only focuses on problems, you know, and, and trying to bring problems to the forefront so that, you know, they can raise the necessary level of awareness to impact the change they feel like needs to be impacted. So I feel like that's where a conflict comes in. And because of my, pers- my experiences and I've worked in both spaces, I think, again, that's why I feel like I'm uniquely qualified to facilitate this platform um, because I get it. I see that. And I, and I feel like that's what I'm hearing from you. And I feel like that's a part of the pushback. So to answer, well, let, me, let, me, let me interject one thing. Cause I okay, just want to make okay, sure go ahead. 
I don't, mm-hmm. I don't come from the place of ignore the problem or pretend the problem doesn't exist. I'm with you 100% in that there's three key tenements. One is you have to identify and acknowledge the problem. If you don't do that, that's just ignorance. So absolutely. We've got, but what I'm getting at is while we're acknowledging the problem and we're addressing the problem, when we make progress, we have to acknowledge that there's progress. I'm not over the top with this whole be positive at all costs. Shit happens, and when shit happens, I get pissed just like everybody else. I'm not perfect, but the mm-hmm. difference is when things do start to go better and there is progress, I say just as much as it's important to get pissed when things go bad and fix them, it's that important to acknowledge the little successes. Otherwise, it is impossible to stay motivated and not say, is this even worth it? It's, it? I mean, there's a million different examples we can give. I'm going to give none of them because I don't want to, you know, hog up the time on the show. But I just wanted to be clear because after what you just said, I didn't want anybody to think I'm one of those goofballs that runs around saying just focus on the unicorns and the rainbows. I'm like, no, bad shit happens. And when it does, we got to acknowledge it. We got to address it. We got to come up with a solution for it. But if six weeks later we've made some progress on that problem, I just think it needs to be acknowledged and the people working hard on it need to be recognized. Otherwise, they're going to say, why the hell am I wasting my time? This is not sure. worth it. We fixed this much of it, and you don't give a crap because you keep talking about how bad it was at the beginning when we didn't do anything. That's what I'm getting at. That's the message. And that's why I said I didn't want to have the dialogue without talking to you first, but I'm glad we're doing this because what you just said, I resonate with 100%. Just want to be clear that I'm not saying ignore the problem or don't try to solve the problem. Those people are just as dangerous, Scott. There's no question. You just live in that positive rainbow and unicorn world. You know, good luck because it doesn't exist. Okay. Well, thanks for, for um, you know, elaborating on that. So with all, with all that being said, um, you know, I, I agree with you 100% that we need to acknowledge uh, when progress is being made. I agree 100% because, like you said, that's what motivates people to stay in the game and, and continue to move forward. Um, I'm, nothing's jumping to the forefront of my mind, um, you know, that's saying, well, how that's effectively done. How, that, how is that effectively being done? And I think that, you know, I guess I would challenge any of our listeners who are activists to think about that. Like, how do you promote the successes? How do you promote the progress that's being made in society? Uh, one of the ways that we try to do that on this show is we have a solution segment at the end of each show. Um, to promote that we are talking about issues, but also promoting solutions as well. Uh, but I think that all of us can be a little bit more mindful in acknowledging solutions. And, you know, when we have conversations and just saying, you know, there are some solutions or some steps you could take to move forward. Um, so, you know, or provide resources or outlets where people are doing things uh, to move forward. So that's definitely needed. So to get into um, what I think about that, that particular stanza that I just read is that, the way I hear it, John, when I read it, just so you know, is that I read this as something that provides a foundation from which people can start processing these issues. I look at, you know, what I just read, um, because a lot of times what I hear in general, in most conversations that most people have, which are surface level conversations, they don't really go deep. They don't go beyond the surface of just blowing stuff up. I'm sorry, blowing stuff off and kind of just generalizing, uh, whether it be in a negative way or a positive way, you know, people tend to overgeneralize. 
And a lot of the conversation isn't backed up with, you know, some type of foundational, you know, framework from which to start and from which to dive deeper. And I look at information like the information that I've read so far as doing just that. So when, you know, because I feel like a lot of uh, European American people that I've encountered either having these conversations with uh, a lot, not all, um, or I've read their comments in social media posts uh, a lot, not all European American people um, will push back um, with that kind of that, you know, well, what about the progress or that's all in the past. And there's so much stuff that's still an issue today um, that still needs to be addressed. And it feels like a lot of people um, of all ethnicities, not all, but a lot of people want to kind of put everything as, oh, that's in the past and we're doing better now. And, Bingo. you know, I think that we got to, we have to figure out a way to communicate more effectively where we can have these conversations where people will kind of hold the tension a little bit longer and not dis- diminish, you know, what people are trying to say. And on the flip side, hold the tension enough to say, you know what, progress has been made on the, for the activist side, for people to say, you know what, yeah, some progress has been made here, some progress has been made there. This is what people like you and I have done to influence that progress. But here's what else we need to do going forward. So it's about all of us, exactly. I think, expanding, you know, the way we speak uh, about these issues. And again, language is everything. And I think, you know, we just have to grow and in and, and the way we speak about complex issues and, and I think that that will help. So, and that's what we take the time to do on this show. And I appreciate people for listening to us go through these, these mental paces because it's only going to make us better. So I appreciate all that you're bringing out, um, you know, John, and, and your comments. And, and before we get to the next stands, I just want to comment what you just said. That, to me, is the secret sauce that's been missing because what you just described is the challenge. Too many people will just shrug it off and say, ah, that's in the past. And I mean, there's just, there's all kinds of messages that are just, they're derogatory, they're insulting. And I get that. And that's why I don't share them. And it's why when people do, I do my best to correct them. And so my whole point is when you take someone like me, a white male, middle-aged businessman, I'm not an activist. I'm not perceived as an activist. So when I'm in the European-American community and I witness that ignorance, I speak up. I tell people about race haven. I talk about what we do. So you've got a guy on the other side of the fence in that world that, you know, Dr. Robin is talking about swimming in where people look at me and they're not going to go, now there is a, uh, a bleeding heart liberal or there is a white apologist because that's not who I am. You know me. That's not my, my MO. So they're not feeling cautious to be themselves around me. So when someone does come out and, and make an ignorant or a racist statement or whatever behavior, they're not looking at me to go ahead and now say something that's going to correct them or try to educate them. My whole point in sharing all that is why run the risk of pissing me off? Someone like me, by using terms like white privilege, white supremacy, and white fragility to where now instead of me going above and beyond what I want to do because I want to make it better for everybody, now you got me on the defensive saying, why the hell are you calling me fragile? Why are you calling me a supremacist? Like it's just the terminology is so 
unnecessary if it offends someone like me who wants to do my part and, and go above and beyond in that community but now feels, is it worth it? Because when I go to Race Haven, uh, I'm just still the white supremacist, uh, white uh, privileged, and if I don't agree with them, white fragile male. Does that make any sense? It's just that's it where does. my head goes. And I'm like, we don't need to do that because you have no idea who I am. You have no idea what I do. And when you throw that label on me, it's just as hurtful as a white racist throwing a label on you. It does. I understand what you're saying. And what I'm hearing, though, when, with, with what you're saying is I'm hearing some pushback from some things I've heard people say before. Like when you say, um, and I don't, I don't, I'm not saying it's real and it's true, but I want to bring it out here. When you say that, you know, um, pissing off somebody like me and, um, you, know, um, you know, I want to go and help that community. I've heard one of our group members, I've read one of our group members uh, say before that, it comes off like a, a quote unquote white savior is another one of those terms, white savior complex uh, that, that you seem to exude. And I know uh, I'm assuming that that's not your intention. And I, I, I try to, I'm trying to process, um, you know, what that person I'll means when they say that. No, let me, let me just make this, let me finish the statement yeah. really quick before you, before you Please, comment. Cause absolutely. I want you to comment on the whole of what I'm about to say. So I, I try to process what that person is saying, and I really want to understand. Um, and again, I don't know if it's a valid thing. It's the way that person feels. I don't know if it's something that I, um, that I feel is, is, is something I want to include in my perspective, but I hear it because they've, uh, one or two people have mentioned it a couple of times with kind of the way you come off on the podcast. There's like a sense of, well, I'm me, and you don't want to piss me off because I'm John. And it's almost like, a, again, a superiority you know, type of thing. Whereas that's what they're hearing. And sure. what I'm, what I'm hearing, I just want to say this really quick. What I'm hearing is you're just being honest. <laughs> I hear that you're being honest and you're speaking about yourself. And I believe that they're projecting that superiority onto you because that's one of those stereotypes that lives in our society. That when a European uh, American person, especially a European American male, you know, speaks about their personal opinions in a certain way, I believe that sometimes people project that whole superiority, that they're speaking from a place of superiority, et cetera, onto them just because, again, that's just how we've been socialized instead of really just getting to the root and understanding what that person is trying to convey. And one of the reasons why I always push back when people say that about you is because, and this is what dialogue is about is you have to remember the common ground that was established before John ever stepped foot on this show. So I push back when people say things like that, because you have to, because of the common ground and because the foundation that you've laid in terms of your intentions, I always push back when people question your intentions. And I just want to say that because I don't think it's fair because you've established why you're here. You continue to show up because you want to do the work even through, you know, this is not easy. You're taking time away just like I'm taking time away from other things because we care. So I push back and that's just kind of my feelings. I hear people and I, I, I went into this because I already hear that coming after we post this show. I hear those statements right. coming. So I wanted to speak to them and I wanted to share how I, how I heard them. So what's your thoughts on that? I appreciate that. No, I appreciate that very much. And, and I respect not just your perspective on it. I respect their perspective on it. I think that you hit it right on the head. We only know what we know. And so 
when you take John, white male, businessman, professional, successful, and I say I am whatever. I am only speaking for me because I don't have the right to speak for anyone else. So you're correct. I'm speaking about me. I do not on any level think I'm some savior. That's not my intent. That's not, my, that's not who I am. However, I am speaking in the first person based on what I am doing and why I am doing it. And unfortunately, and this is going to land really poorly for the people that don't like what I already said, it's your insecurity or it's your programming that projects that. And it would be the same thing as me. Now, I'm going to preface by saying I don't feel this way and I wouldn't say the words, but it's the same thing as if I were to just simply say, well, gee, Scott, that's just an angry African-American. And that would be so totally wrong. I could perceive it that way. I could, I could justify and validate that that's my feeling towards their, their attitudes and their reactions, but it wouldn't make it true. It wouldn't make it just an angry African-American, you know, responding. That's the, totally disregarding their feelings, their experiences, everything. So when people do that, it's just a lack of, of emotional understanding. It's a lack of, of experience, whatever. And I will preface it, and I will say this. I understand why people perceive me that way. You've known me for a while. You've had plenty of time to judge me. I look at it this way. On our planet, in our society, there's three types of people. There's sheep, there's wolves, and there's sheepdogs. There's a lot of, of different messages around that way, but I use those three terms. There's even you know, wolves in sheep's clothing, which are the worst. But the bottom line is I'm not a sheep. I'm not one of those mindless people that is, is guided by media and other people's opinions. I'm not a wolf. I'm not out there preying on innocent, naive people. I'm a sheepdog, which means if something's not right, I will stand up and I will make a, a statement. I will get in a, an argument, whatever it takes, if I believe somebody is being unfairly treated, white, black, male, female, young, old. I don't judge. I just, if something goes against my moral compass, I don't sit back and pull my phone out and take a video like these people do on Facebook. I'll actually engage in it. So as a sheepdog, yeah, unfortunately, it pisses a lot of people off because they're not used to having someone stand up and speak their mind and stand in their truth, but that's what I do. And on this show, unfortunately, it does create that message that does he think he's better than anyone else? And I don't. I absolutely in my heart know, it's not even believing, know that I'm not better than anyone else, will do and say things that most people are afraid to do, hence why would a businessman come on a show that talks about race and religion and politics and anything else that's incendiary that can't do anything except harm the financial side of a business? I don't do it, or I do it because I don't care about that. I'm here to hopefully wake people up and, and move them from the polarized end to the middle, which is where you and I want to get to, where we're all getting along because we realize we have more similarities than we have differences. Absolutely. 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 So I want to skip ahead in the article Sorry a little bit. Rant. Oh, no worries. No worries. I'm going to skip ahead in the article a little bit. And I hope that our uh, listeners will take the time to read the whole article. Um, no matter where you stand on the information, I hope that you'll read it just to, uh, you know, just get a foundation for a, a very um, meaningful and worthwhile piece of information that really helps speak to a lot of the complexities around the issues 
that we're discussing through this show. The whole entire premise of Race Haven uh, was designed for many of the, the issues that are, you know, covered in this article. So with that being said, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, John, and read a couple of things and just get your feedback on it. So the author goes into um, what, what she calls patterns. Um, she says the following patterns make it difficult for white people to understand racism as a system and lead to the dynamics of white fragility. While they do not apply to every white person, they are well documented overall. So actually, before I even get into that, you know, we talked about the whole thing about white fragility. Um, I want to, I want to tell what it is first, you know, cause John, you've mentioned that it, you know, it, it rubs you the wrong way. And I know from experience, it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. A lot of European Americans, the wrong way, not all, but a lot. And I just want to read why the author uh, really quick for our listeners, why the author uh, sure. took that perspective. Uh, the author says that, um, when encountering uh, various challenges, the author lists, you know, a list of challenges, which again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into, but the author lists these, uh, a list of challenges, uh, and I'll just list some of them, um, suggesting that, um, let's see, challenges to this identity uh, become, I need to go back. I'm sorry, guys. I'm, I'm kind of trying to skim and pull stuff out, but also be able to say it so that it makes sense to you all. Um, so, Challenges to uh, European Americans' identity, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing right now, uh, become highly stressful and even intolerable. And then she lists the following are examples of the kinds of challenges that trigger racial, racial stress for white people. Suggesting that a white person's viewpoint comes from a racialized frame of reference. People of color talking directly about their own racial perspectives. Um, and what she says, that's challenge to white taboos on talking openly about race. People of color choosing not to protect, protect the racial feelings of white people in regards to race. This challenges to challenge to white racial expectations and need slash entitlement to racial discomfort. And she lists, she lists several more. And then she goes on to say, not often encountering these challenges, we withdraw, defend, cry, argue, minimize, ignore, and in other ways push back to regain our racial position and equilibrium. I term that pushback white fragility. So I just wanted to highlight, she, she, she listed about 10 more, uh, you know, things that she feels that make European American people uncomfortable. And, and then she calls the pushback against those things, white fragility. So I wanted to, I wanted to make that clear. Now I want to go into, uh, let's see, some of these, these patterns. So one of the patterns is, uh, is segregation. And I'm going to begin reading now. Most whites live, grow, play, learn, love, work, and die primarily in social and geographic, geographic racial segregation. Yet our society does not teach us to see this as a loss. Pause for a moment and consider the magnitude of this message. We lose nothing of value by having no cross-racial relationships. In fact, the wider our schools and neighborhoods are, the more likely they are to be seen as quote-unquote good. The implicit message is that there is no inherent value in the presence or perspectives of people of color. This is an example of the relentless messages of white superiority that circulate all around us, shaping our identities and worldviews. The next one that I want to read is the good-bad binary. I'm going to read three. So the good-bad binary. 
The most effective adaptation of racism over time is the idea that racism is conscious bias held by mean people. If we are not aware of having negative thoughts about people of color, don't tell racist jokes, are nice people, and even have friends of color, then we cannot be racist. Thus, a person is either racist or not racist. If a person is racist, that person is bad. If a person is not racist, that person is good. Although racism does occur, I'm sorry, although racism does, of course, occur in individual acts, these acts are part of a larger system that we all participate in. The focus on individual incidences prevents the analysis that is necessary in order to challenge this larger system. The good-bad binary is the fundamental misunderstanding driving white defensiveness about being connected to racism. We simply do not understand how socialization and implicit bias work. That's the second one. Um, I just want to add to that really quick that I see that a lot. I see that a lot. And that's one of the reasons why I feel like an article like this can do so much good, that if people are able to receive it um, and take on what John has shared about how can we, uh, how can we wrap this in, in a way that people will read it. And then by them reading it, then it's only going to inform their world, broaden their worldview and broaden their hearts and mind. Even for people who reject it initially, if you keep hearing a message or seeing a message consistently pop up, eventually it starts to seep in. And a message like that is so important because I've interacted with so many European-American people who feel like racism is simply acts and words. And they, they, they have a hard time seeing the larger system of racism that was created, again, hundreds of years ago. And stick with me on this statement because a lot of people want to stop there. It was created hundreds of years ago and it all ended. And it just, didn't, it just doesn't work that way. There's literally, as I said before, there's literally still language and laws, and literally, it's just it's so embedded in our culture, even in the way the author is writing this by saying people of color versus, you know, white people. It's things I'm reading that I've evolved to not even use these terms because I understand that they are, they are a part of the system that continues to create that environment that the author is actually speaking to. So, I mean, it's so much to unpack because this is so complex, and I believe what John is saying, and I think there's value in John, John was in what John is saying about how can we present these type of messages in the way where they land, where they don't push people away at the onset because of the title, and that people will actually read it so that it can begin to inform their worldview. I think that is so important. So the good-bad binary, as well as the whole segregation piece, is so important. I don't think people realize you know, the, the, the benefits or just the implicit cultural social constructs about, you know, the whole idea that the majority of European American people in this country still live around majority European American people and all that comes with that. I mean, it's so deep. And because of time, I can't really unpack it the way I want to because we only have 20 minutes left. So I'm going to read one more and then I'm going to let you jump back in, John. The third one. All right. uh, and, there's, and there are, let's see, three, four, five, six, um, six of them. But the third one is individualism, and we've done a show on this, but it, I'm going to begin reading now. Begin quote, whites are taught to see themselves as individuals rather than as part of a racial group. Individualism enables us to deny that racism is structured into the fabric of society. This erases our history and hides the way in which wealth has accumulated over generations and benefits us as a group. 
today. It also allows us to distance ourselves from the history and actions of our group. Thus, we get very irate when we are accused of racism because as individuals, we are different from other white people and expect to be seen as such. We find intolerable any suggestion that our behavior or perspectives are typical of our group as a whole. So I'm going to, I'm going to close out with that one on individualism, because I know again, just from my experience doing this work um, that a lot of European Americans, not all uh, really, really get caught up on the individualism one. And I understand, here's the thing. I get it. I understand why, because again, that's how most European Americans have been socialized and that's how European Americans have grown up. You've literally grown up in a world where every other group was a group, but European Americans just were. Everything in the way we talk, in the way that our media is presented, in the way our business is presented, in the way our laws are presented, European Americans are the default. Everyone else is a subgroup. Everyone else is a community. You don't hear the quote-unquote European American community. You hear the African American community or the this community, etc. Also, just one little small thing that was mentioned in the article that I, that I, you know, I think is interesting is that it talks about how European Americans are, are centered in society. And one way is just through film and media, whereas like in, in movies, you'll see European Americans playing roles of people from all different ethnicities around the world. If you see a movie about Africa, you'll see a European American being Tarzan. I'm sorry, not European American. Let's say a European, a person of European descent playing Tarzan or, you know, movies about uh, Africa and Egypt. You'll see Europeans playing the role of Egyptian kings and queens or movies about Asia. There was a movie recently about Asia and, and you know, there were Europeans leading in those roles. Um, so there's like even in the movies, in a lot of instances, Europeans are centered, even when they are in different lands and countries with leading roles and as the, the lead figure and the power figure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just one example uh, of that. Um, so with that being said, I'm going to stop there, John, and let you, I just want to get your thoughts on individualism, uh, the good, bad binary and segregation. How do those, those various things, the way that they were just put forth, um, you know, how do they sit with you very briefly as we're running out of time? And I'm sorry to say well, that I very briefly. Say, no, that's okay. I'll simply say this again, full agreement with the broad stroke of it, because it's the truth. Uh, I'll sum it up by agreeing with your statement that if you're a white person, you're part of the default and everything else, as you said, is a subset of that. Um, I'd love to shut up right now and get us to the solution side, because I know we've talked about, and I believe that there is at least a door opener for a solution that helps clear up all three of those. Perfect, because that was going to be my question to you. So I'm glad you said that, because my follow-up question was literally going to be, how do we, how do we restructure and you know, put all of us on equal footing? And we can go ahead and jump into the solution segment for that conversation. I appreciate it, because, again, full agreement with that. Even though it doesn't apply to me, I don't argue with the fact that it's a true statement and it does control uh, the broad stroke in society. So here's my solution, or at least my attempt at one. We've talked a million times that education is the key and effective communication is the, is the pathway. I believe that we have to 
just make the decision that we're going to change certain terminologies. I'm going to get away from the three that I already mentioned because I already beat them to death. But I want to do a I show on those, too, by the way, John. I just want to jump in there just well, really quick and tell you. It's funny because I literally – one of the next shows that we're going to do is literally unpacking the meaning behind those things because they mean different things to different people. And I know that, and I want to really unpack that and, and have that conversation a little bit more. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Excellent. No, don't apologize because I'm in agreement on it. So here's my point. We as a society are so clueless and uneducated. So when certain individuals of high education and intelligence in this area speak, it's like a foreign language to the masses, including me. So we have deemed racism as a term to mean so many things I think both of us would agree are not what its term means. So when, when you hear systemic racism and racism, people of the masses hear the term and apply it to things it doesn't apply to. So my point is, if we could start to address and identify two other words, prejudice and bigotry, instead of using racism for everything, we can begin to clear this up. Because I agree. Where, where a lot of European Americans, myself included, get all bent and twisted is when you lump me into a group that somehow is racist, I'm going to defend it because I'm not racist. In my mind, I'm going, that's bullshit. I'm not that person because my brain translates the word racism into prejudice and bigotry definitions. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. All the sense in the world. So you, Scott, have every right to discuss what you just discussed about systemic racism and how I have, because of the generations and being European-American, blah, blah, benefited from it. And I would have no pushback if you, on some level, were in a society where it was clear to me that you weren't calling me a prejudiced bigot. And that's the challenge. Right now, racism applies to everything. You would never refer to me as a bigot. You would never say John's prejudiced. But you have every right to say John has been privileged growing up in systemic race. Does that make any sense that by being able to clarify those terms, we could eliminate so much of the, the negative pushback and the lack of awareness and move towards a better solution where a white guy like me doesn't get offended and goes, damn, you're right, I have benefited from it, and this needs to be changed, and all of a sudden you got more people aware and willing to say, this is garbage, it needs to be changed, instead of legitimately defending themselves, going, I'm not, a, I'm not Archie Bunker, I'm not a friggin' bigot, I'm not prejudiced, how dare you call And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that's not what I'm talking about, but it doesn't matter because their brain went to the left or to the right and completely missed what you were trying to communicate. So absolutely. I mean, um, that's, again, one of my biggest soapbox issues is, again, getting back to language and the fact that we speak different languages depending on the, pers- the community that we come from and the perspectives that we were you know, raised in and on, as well as the, the knowledge that we choose, the circles we choose to run in now as adults and the knowledge we choose to embrace. And because you have had the opportunity to be involved in this race haven community, you opted in you now have a deeper understanding of the nuances behind some of these terms. But the reality is the masses don't. And, and when I say the masses, that includes um, ethnic minorities as well. The masses, the masses of African-Americans still lump 
all, a lot of these terms and to mean what they used to mean, but they haven't evolved into what the work that a lot of these sociologists are doing to help us unpack the true meaning behind some of these terms. So like, for example, the term white supremacist, most people in America, and I'm making a broad generalization assumption based on my experiences, still believe that means the KKK or the neo-Nazis. Listen, I'm going to, I'm going to validate and say it absolutely does. And even someone like myself who has worked really hard to become more educated and aware it's still, you call me a white supremacist, I'm going to be like, damn, man, I'm not a KKK member. So, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's one of those trigger things. So I just wanted to interrupt and say you're 100% correct, and that's the kind of stuff that we have got to change. Absolutely. And literally, before I started doing this work and before maybe, you know, within the last five, five to ten years of my adult life, I thought it to mean the same thing. When someone said a white supremacist, I instantly thought that that's what it was. So it's like, I don't, you know, when it comes to solutions, it's just we have to do the work because now I noticed that a lot of um, African-American people and as a fact, let me let me backtrack that statement. I noticed that a lot of people who do race relations work or race relations activism or write or speak or engage in this work in any capacity now use the term white supremacy to, to speak about it as a system. They're not talking about individuals. So like the way I explain it in a conversation I have with uh, someone recently is that, you know, when I think about systems, I think about a spectrum. And I say that because we've all been raised and indoctrinated in a white supremacist society, we are all on the white supremacy scale somewhere, depending on how, how we've been awakened to it. We've all been indoctrinated into, into a white supremacist society so therefore, again, this is Scott speaking. I think that Scott is on the white supremacy scale. I am a white supremacist on some level because I was raised to be one. Now, what do I mean by that? And again, we're going to do a show on this, but very briefly, if you could just think about, again, it's just like being raised to be a, a Catholic or a Christian or, you know, a Republican or a Democrat. It's just, you know, just because the environment you came up in. So, and then based on the things you learn or unlearn or the things you become awakened to or aware of as you mature in this life determines where you fall on that scale. But simply just because of the way we were born into the, the way society was set up and my, and based on how I understand things, I believe that we all fall on that scale somewhere. So again, that's heavy for most people, especially if you're coming to this show thinking of white supremacists being the KKK. But and I hate that I had to drop something like that towards the end of the show. But um, these are these are the way I think about things. No, it's great. It's going to make people things. want to come back and listen to the next one. I'm glad you did. Awesome, awesome. Because I mean, so again, to say okay, solutions, right? John just said what the solution is, and I think it's the same. But how do we actually do that? How do we get this thing to resonate? You know, and in this this understanding to to resonate and actually expand and spread to the masses. And the only thing I could think is that. You know, we spread conversations and shows, and also we start living it. We start being the change we want to see in the world. And one simple way that I do that, and again, I don't say that anyone has to do it because you may not believe what I believe, but that's the reason why you hear me, you don't hear me calling people white or black anymore. So I say European American or African American or Asian American or Native American, or if I know, and first of all, I say your name, but if I have to generalize, I generalize based on your, your ethnic heritage and your nationality. 
And sometimes if I'm being brief, I'll just say your ethnic heritage, uh, someone of European descent or African or group of people of European descent or of African descent or African-Americans, or European-Americans or Asian-Americans, et cetera. That's what I do. And that's me speaking the change that we're speaking about, me speaking uh, the language of what I believe is to be solution, speaking the language of equality, speaking the language of, you know, equi- equity, because unfortunately, the social construct of race created white people and it created black people. But when it created white people, it not only it's not just a name, it's also it's like real estate. It's, it has equity based on the way our society was set up. So it's almost as if, you know, I mean, again, we won't go into you. You guys understand what that means based on the article we just discussed and what we talk about on this show and just history in general. And if you understand it, if you don't understand it, please research. Just Google white people, Google and read up um, uh, scientific racism and how they came up with the whole idea of Caucasian versus, you know, Caucasoids, Negroids, Mongoloids, et cetera, and what all that means. And then they'll unpack and, you know, unpack that. And when you understand that, you'll understand why I choose to reject that, that social construct and just, you know, refer to people based on their name. And if I need to generalize, then I'll generalize based on their ethnicity and nationality versus quote unquote race. So I think the solution is speaking, you know, the change you want to see, unpacking terms, you know, the terms that John mentioned already. And continue to do what we're doing and having these conversations and holding the tension and the discomfort that we feel. Because even though I want to, I want to say this to close out, even though John came onto this show expressing how uncomfortable white fragility makes him feel, John read the article. He read the article. And not only did he read the article, he then sat through a 90 minute discussion with me about all of it. So what that says is, John felt the tension, he felt the stress, but then he was willing to work through it. That's leadership. That's growth. John's being the change that he wants to see in the world. I appreciate that so much. That's our time for today. A special thank you to John for coming on today. Uh, and, and dialoguing with me about this topic and as well as spearheading uh, this show and this topic. John, briefly tell our listeners how they can connect with you on your work. Be more than happy to. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, John Costino, J-O-H-N-C-O-S-T-I-N-O. You can also uh, feel free to email me at Costino at yahoo.com. Scott, as always, it's a pleasure. I thank you for creating the platform and the environment for us to have these conversations and for being just such an awesome example for everybody, including me to follow. I thank you. Thank you, man. I appreciate those kind words and thank you to our listeners. I appreciate you all so much uh, for listening and be sure to subscribe to the race Haven podcast on the iPhone podcast app or Stitcher radio app for Android so that you never miss the dialogue. And if you love this show, please leave us a review. Uh, This will help the show gain more visibility and listeners. We need more reviews. Please leave us a review. You can connect with us by email at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com or online at the Racehaven Podcast Facebook uh, page or racehavenpodcast.com. You can also join our discussion group on Facebook at Racehaven Community Dialogue. The reason why you hear me say us, 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 because I'm speaking for the community, not just me. This is a community 
Race Haven is a community. It includes me. It includes John. It can, includes you, all the listeners. It, can, it includes you, all of the contributors on the Race Haven uh, Facebook group page and all the people who just read. I know a lot of you never speak on the page, but you're just there reading and growing and learning. And some of you inbox me and I appreciate it. Even though you never comment, you inbox me. And I know that you're, you think that the show is making an impact on you, but I want you to know that you're making an impact and you're making a positive difference just by absorbing and listening and making and including these thoughts and ideas into your worldview. So thank you so much. Thank you to the Race Haven community. So with that being said, what is a Race Haven? A Race Haven is a safe place for people from diverse ethnic, religious, cultural, and political backgrounds to bring their race-based perspectives, questions, assumptions, frustrations, and experiences to engage in thoughtful, honest dialogue in an effort to transcend race and unify America. Remember, we are all smarter when we think together. Love y'all. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast. Be sure to visit www.racehavenblog.com to comment and learn more.